Parshas Vezos Abracha, the final Parsha in the entire Torah, begins with Moshe's blessing of the various tribes. And the blessings begin with the firstborn of Yaakov's sons, the descendants of his firstborn, the tribe of Ruvain. Yechi Ruvain v'al Yamos v'hi misav misbar. May Ruvain live and not die. May his tribe, the inhabitants, the men of his tribe, be counted, be in the count. The entire bracha is opaque, is ambiguous, is unclear, and we will leave the second half of it, especially as Rashi understands it, for a little bit later when we understand Rashi's approach to the first half of the Pasuk. But that's really what I'd like to focus our attention on. What does this mean, why would Ruvain of all people, why would tribe of Ruvain specifically need a bracha that they should live and not die? Obviously, something must be going on here, right? That's a nice generic bracha that we'd want to give anybody that they should have long life, that they shouldn't die. But there's a reason, presumably, that specifically the tribe of Ruvain receives this bracha. What exactly is the bracha and why does the tribe of Ruvain specifically need this particular blessing? One approach, suggested by the Abarbanel and others, is that this alludes to the arrangement made between Ruvain, among other tribes, and Moshe, when it came to the decision of the two and a half tribes led by Ruvain to stay on Avrayardain. As you recall, they fell in love with the land that was on the eastern side of the Yardain. They did not want to cross over into Eretz proper. They thought this was better for their families, better for their financial situation. And initially Moshe was very upset at them. He thought they were shirking the responsibility that they were leaving the other tribes, their brothers, to fight for Eretz Yisrael. And then after clarifying their intentions, they strike a deal with Moshe in which they agree to leave their women and children in Avra Yardain and to go across the Yardain to travel into Eretz Yisrael proper with all of the other tribes. And that not only would they fight, but they would be among the leaders, the first soldiers, to lead the fight in conquering the various nations who inhabited Canaan at the time, helping the Jewish people not only conquer, but also settle the land of Eretz Yisrael. And they promised not to return to Avra Yardin, not to return to their families, until the rest of B'nai Yisrael was, had conquered and settled the land of Eretz Yisrael proper. Therefore, now, at the end of his life, as Moshe says goodbye to all of the Jewish people, and particularly to this tribe of leaders on Avra Yardin, he references this arrangement that they made, which even though Moshe was, you know, uncompromising at the time, but now, looking, looking at it, looking forward to it, and considering it, Moshe realizes the danger that these soldiers, that this tribe has put themselves in. After all, they are going to be the vanguard, the frontline warriors, and of course that's the most dangerous position in an invading army, and therefore he blesses them that they should live and survive, they should return back to their families Shalom, with safety and healthy, that is the first approach, that of the Abarbanel. Rashi, however, basing his comments on a medrash in the Sifrei, looks not to the future and the future conquering of Eretz Yisrael, rather way into the distant past, going back to the namesake of the tribe, to Ruvain himself. And therefore, says Rashi, again based on the medrash, this is a reference to actually an incident in Ruvain's life which was so dramatic, so impactful, that Yaakov Avinu, Ruvain's father, referenced it in his brachas 
to Ruvain on Yaakov's deathbed. In Perak Memtes, a Sefer Bereshis, as Yaakov is on his deathbed giving brachos to all the children, he refers in his bracha to Ruvain. He specifically refers to the incident that occurred after the death of Ruvain's mother, Yaakov's wife, Rachel, where we are told that Ruvain was intimate with Rachel's concubine, with Bila, ki Alisa Mishkeve avicha az chilalta yitzui Allah. Yaakov references this terrible mistake on the part of Ruvain in his bracha and refers to the fact that you ascended upon your father's bed. You profaned him, you were him by going onto his bed, i.e. by sharing the bed of the pilagesh, of the concubine, of Bila. And obviously that was such a jarring and terrible mistake that Yaakov felt the need to mention it. And now, all these years later, Moshe refers to that when he's blessing not Ruvain, but Ruvain's descendants, the tribe of Ruvain. And the bracha here is, says Rashi, that Moshe is davening, Moshe is praying to the tribe of Ruvain be spared any continuing effects of this, uh, of this punishment. In the words of Rashi, lo bilha, that in this world, in Olam Haba, the tribe should uh, be freed of the stain and the residual impact that this uh, mistake that Ruvain made had had on Ruvain himself and the tribe in these first previous generations. Third is an interpretation of the Malbim, which in a certain way one could say is a twist or very, very similar variation to Rashi. But the focus is not on a specific sin of Ruvain in his past, rather a caricature that starts with Ruvain, the individual, and according to the Malbim, Moshe is worried about, has taken hold in the tribe themselves. And that is the Mida that led to the mistake and the sin with Bila, and other decisions, perhaps questionable decisions, that Ruvain had taken. Yaakov, back in Sefer Bereshis, on his deathbed, in Yaakov's bracha to Ruvain, he describes him as pachaz kamayim. He is restless or unstable like water. And the Malbim uh, seems to be getting at uh, that what we're describing here is the fact that Ruvain had a certain impetuous nature. He was impulsive, rushing like water to do something without necessarily considering the ramifications. He put, he's the one who suggested Yosef be thrown into the pit. He offers that Yaakov can kill his own sons, Ruvain's own sons, if something had happened to Binyamin. And because of this, he loses his leadership, despite being the firstborn. This mida of impetuousness, of not being careful of being impulsive, has hurt Ruvain and hurt the tribe. And therefore Moshe prays that Ruvain's descendants should be spared the consequences of this impulsivity, blessing them a life of peaceful tranquility. Among the famous opening psukim in Parshas Vazosa Bracha, before we get to the specifics of the actual brachos that Moshe Rabbeinu gives the various shvatim, the various tribes, we read right at the outset in the second uh, pasuk of the Parsha, Yomer, Moshe tells the people, Hashem Sinai Ba, Hashem came forth from Sinai, Vizarach Meseir Lamo, he was shown forth to them from Seir, Hofia Meharparan, he appeared from Harparan, Vasa Mirivos Kodesh, it's a little bit harder to translate, but the way Rashi explains it, that Hashem came with uh, the multitudes of angels, Kodesh, holy referring to angels, that Hashem was accompanied by angels when he uh, appeared to the Jewish people at Har Sinai, Mimino Esh Das Lamo, uh, from his right hand, uh, Kaviachal, Hashem presented uh, the fire, 
It's allusion to the Torah that was written, you know, with a certain kind of an ish, al-gabe ish, black fire and white fire, uh, to use the famous metaphor of the Medrash, which Rashi here quotes as well. Um, I want to focus on a particular comment in the Medrash and the Sifrei, uh, which Rashi breaks down into two different comments here on the Parsha, and that is when it refers to Hashem coming, uh, what does that mean, Meseir? that the Hashem is shown forth from Seir. So Rashi quotes from the Medrash, that this is an allusion to the children of Esav who lived in Seir, and Mehar Paran, uh, that is referred to, reference to the Bnei Yishmael who lived in Paran. And the common denominator of both of them is the famous Medrash, which Rashi is quoting, that before Hashem offered the Torah to the Jewish people in Har Sinai, he offered the Torah to various other nations, uh, Rashi's quoting, of course, Esav and Yishmael. I think in the Fuller Medrash it also mentions Ammon and Moab. And that all of these nations, when they asked what was in the Torah, and they found out that there were particular uh, commandments which would go against uh, their nature, things that they enjoy doing, Esav murder, Yishmael uh, theft, Ammon and Moab uh, sexual immorality. Therefore they refused the Torah. And only then did Hashem give them the Torah, the Jewish people, the Torah at Har Sinai. In Rav Schwab Sefer Ma'ayan Beis HaShoeva, uh, he asks uh, two very fundamental and really obvious questions once you hear them uh, on this Medrash and on this Rashi. Number one, we have in many, many sources, including our davening, uh, we refer to ourselves as the chosen people. Atav Chartanu Mikola Amim is part of our uh, liturgy. But how can you say that Hashem chose us from among the nations if according to this Medrash, Hashem actually was willing to give the Torah to other nations and only backed into giving it to us because the other nations said no? Secondly, um, the examples that I mentioned in the Medrash where these various nations rejected the Torah because of murder, adultery, and stealing doesn't even make any sense because they were already commanded in those uh, particular prohibitions because those are part of the Shev Mitzvah B'nai Noach, which all non-Jews are obligated in and prohibited from doing. So there was no reason not to accept the Torah because of adultery, stealing, or murder, because anyway they're obligated in those three uh, prohibitions among the Shev Mitzvah B'nai Noach. So what were the Goyim, you know, think that they're gaining by rejecting the Torah because of these specific things. So Schwab, in answering these questions, develops a thesis which is really based on uh, a breakthrough chiddush of his at the outset. And that is, he says, even according to this Medrash, Hashem never really offered and certainly never intended to give the Torah, our Torah, Tariag Mitzos, to the non-Jews. After all, as, as Chazal teaches us and Rashi quotes in the beginning of the Torah, Bereshis b'shil Yisrael shenukarashis. We were destined for the Torah from the beginning of time, from before time. It's inconceivable that Hashem would have given the Torah to any other nation. Rather, what this Medrash means is that the other nations were offered to be makabel, the seven mitzvos, but not as individual uh, obligations, but rather as part of a Kabbalah Satorah, but a Kabbalah of the seven mitzvos. Just like the Jewish people were going to have some special Kabbalah of the 613, they were being offered, do they want to have some extra level, some transcendent Kabbalah over the seven mitzvahs. Now what exactly does that mean? Or Shrab is getting at that there's something about the Kabbalah, something about Matan Torah, which was different, which made the whole greater than some of its parts that the Jewish people did get when they got the Torah. And it's that extra, still yet undefined element, which the Goyim were being offered with the seven mitzvahs, which they turned down.
So what was that? What was that magical uh, idea? So Rav Schwab explains that the real Chiddush of Matan Torah was not just that they were commanded in now 613 mitzvos. After all, they were already commanded in quite a few mitzvos even before Har Sinai. They were commanded in the seven mitzvos, but also Brismila, the various mitzvos which were included to the Jewish people at Marah. So we got now from, I don't know, whatever the number we were up to now, maybe we're up to 10 or 11, now we got up to 613. That's a lot more, but it's not a fundamental change. It's just a quantitative difference. Rather, says our Shwab, the real Chiddush Matan Torah is that through our Nasev and Ishma, through getting the Torah at Har Sinai, the mitzvahs became implanted into the essence of the soul of the Jew, into the panemius of the Neshama of the Jew, says our Shwab. It became part of who we are. It's our natural inclination to do mitzvahs. Or we are most true to ourselves when we're doing the mitzvahs. As the Gemara says in Brachos, Galiv Yadua, we say to Hashem, it's clear to you, that our true, genuine, authentic will is to follow your will, God, to do the Torah. But sometimes we slip up because we have Yetzirah. The famous Rambam and Gerashim, that if a man doesn't want to give a get, when he is obligated to do so, the Beitin would beat him up. Why? Not to get him to do something he doesn't want to do. But to get him to do what he really, really does want to do. In his inner self, of course he wants to do the right thing. If the Bezin says give a get, that's the right thing to do. He wants to do that. They're just beating the Yetzirah out of him. But really, really, he wants to do that. Says our Schwab, that capacity was brought into the world at Har Sinai, and every Jewish child, as the Gemara teaches us in Masechah Nida, when he's learning the Torah with the angel in his mother's womb, that's when he becomes one with the Torah, when the Torah becomes his natural inclination. This is what the non-Jews had an opportunity to have, that type of relationship with the seven mitzvahs, and they refused. They're still obligated to the seven mitzvahs, they still have to do them, but they're merely something external to them. It's a chiv asiyah, but it's external to who they are. The Bnei Esav still want to murder, Yishmael want to steal, Amon Monomov want to have immorality. But, they have to do it, but it's not who they are, and it doesn't change them. It's purely behavioral. Whereas with us, it's part of our neshama, and each time we follow the Torah and mitzvos, it becomes more and more ingrained in who we are. It changes who we are. It makes us more in keeping with our authentic true selves. That's something unique to the Jewish people. The non-Jews could have had it, and they lost it. Moshe begins his... Farewell blessing to the tribes of uh, Israel by blessing the tribe of Ruvain, which of course makes sense. Ruvain is the firstborn. Yechi Ruvain, Baal Yamos, Masav Mispar. They should have life, they should be uh, stature, they should do well. What's interesting is the continuation. The very next Pasuk tells us which tribe gets blessed second. Vizos to Yehuda, this to Yehuda. And he said, Shema Hashem kol Yehuda. The voice of Yehuda and to his people, you shall bring him. Yadav Ravlo, may his hands fight for him. And may you be a helper against his enemies. Everything about this Pasuk uh, perhaps needs explanation. First of all, each phrase is incredibly opaque and unclear what exactly it's referring to. Moreover, the introduction of the Pasuk, seems to be a total non-sequitur. And this to Yehuda. What? What to Yehuda? What's this? What's Vizos? What are we talking about? And then, perhaps, the biggest question of them all is, why is Yehuda being blessed now in the first place? Why is Yehuda the second tribe that gets blessed? We understand Reuven started. That's the Bechor. Reuven is the fourth son that's born to Yaakov. What happened to Shimon and Levi? They came first. Why did they get skipped? Why did he go from Reuven right to Yehuda? So in order to answer these questions, and I say these are very pshat, basic uh, questions, but among the approaches that are offered is very much a drush 
which is in, contained in the Medrash and the Sefrei here in our Parsha, and in a more extended form, which we will quote from as well, is the Gemara at Masech Sota on Dav Zayin Amad Beis. And the discussion of Chazal starts with the assumption that both Yehuda and Ruvain, these two aforementioned Shvatim, these, but the actual uh, brothers themselves, Yehuda and Ruvain, they both were Hode Velobosh. They both had the virtue of admitting publicly their mistake, and they weren't too embarrassed to admit that. So the Gemara continues, Chazal explain, we understand that Yehuda was willing to uh, admit his mistake publicly. That's an explicit pasuk after his indiscretion with Tamar, at the last possible moment in the climactic a part of that story, Tamar hints at who was the person who committed the sin with her, and rather than just hiding in the shadows, Yehuda steps forward and admits that it was him, and he says in his famous words, Tzadka mimeni, she's more virtuous, she's more righteous, she's more correct than me. So we see that he uh, admitted his mistake, he confessed publicly. But ask Chazal, where do we see that Reuven ever confessed? And what sin is that talking about? Of course, that's the sin of what Reuven did with Bilha, with his mother's concubine after uh, she passed away. It's not exactly clear what the sin was, but you know it was something evidently serious. But where do we see that he ever confessed in the way that we do see that Yehuda did? So Chazal explained as follows. All those years, the 40 years that Moshe and the Jewish people were wandering in the desert, among the things that they were carrying with them the entire time were the bodies of all of the Shvatim. Originally buried in Egypt, they had been disinterred, and they were being carried throughout the desert so they could be reburied, reinterred in Eretz Yisrael. We know the famous Psukim talk about Moshe going to get Yosef at the time of uh, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, and Chazal understand from this in a drush that it wasn't just uh, the Atzmos Yosef, but in fact all of the Shvatim were uh, disinterred and then carried throughout the 40 years in the desert to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. Chazal continue and say there was a difference. All of the other Shvatim, miraculously, their bodies stayed intact to preserve their dignity, presumably. However, Yehuda, his bones were rattling around in the Aron, and you could hear that. And I guess that would be presumably a embarrassment, a bizayon for Yehuda. Why was Yehuda singled out for this uh, embarrassment? So Chazal and Masech Demakos tell us that um, when Yehuda accepted upon himself a ban, a tremendous punishment, cherem, uh, if Binyamin wouldn't be safe, when he's begging Yaakov to give him permission to bring Binyamin down to Egypt, and he promises all sorts of things, and in case, in case, not something happens to Binyamin, I'll be punished, etc. So Chazal tells us, even though in the end Binyamin was saved, Binyamin was protected and safely returned to Yaakov. Nevertheless, Yehuda shouldn't have accepted such a ban upon himself, and therefore the residual impact of that ban was that he is punished by the fact that he did not have the miraculous uh, body remaining intact like his brothers, and his bones were rattling around in a very embarrassing way. So say Chazal, now at this moment, Moshe Rabbeinu is praying to Hashem, please, why should Yehuda be embarrassed? After all, Yehuda may have made a mistake, but so did Ruvain. And Ruvain confessed to sin. But where do you think Ruvain got it from? Says the Gemara Sei Chazal, he learned from Yehuda. Mi garm le Ruvain Shehuda? He got it from Yehuda. When he saw Yehuda confessed, he was inspired to do the same thing himself. So, parenthetically, that's how we know that Ruvain had confessed. Because that is brought uh, in the Gemara as part of Moshe's argument, almost as Kavachomer that Moshe is using to Hashem, it's not right to punish um, Yehuda if you've not punished in the same way Ruvain. Ruvain only learned the correct behavior from Yehuda. If, you, if Ruvain is taken care of, certainly 
then uh, Yehuda should. And that's what the Gemara explains, that's what Chazal explained, that's how the Pasuk begins. V'zosli Yehuda. If Yechi Ruvain, if Ruvain is being taken care of, V'zosli Yehuda, Moshe Rabbeinu asks rhetorically and in astonishment, this is the way you're letting Yehuda be embarrassed with his bones rattling around? How could it be? And Chazal explained that, in fact, Moshe's uh, prayer was accepted. Now this is more or less the end of the the Medrash and Rashi, but it's worth noting in a little time that we have left that the Gemara actually goes further and explains every other phrase in the Pasuk as well along these lines. In an astonishing drush, the Gemara says, well still, even though his bones then reconnected to their bodies, they weren't rattling around, but still Yehuda at that time was not accepted into the Masifta de Rakia, the heavenly base Medrash with all the great tzaddikim of all the generations. So Moshe Davind, ve'el amotiv yenu, bring him back to his amot, to the other tzaddikim. And that was admitted, that was accepted. But he still didn't know how to debate halacha with the other tzaddikim. He wasn't on their level to do the pilpula of Torah with them. So Moshe Davin, Yodav Ravlo, let him be able to fight in the Mecham Shal Torah. And that was accepted. But one more thing still needed to be done, because Yehuda didn't know how to finally finish the job. He couldn't win in an argument. He couldn't actually get a psak like his opinion in the Masifted Rakia. So Moshe Davin's one last time, Ve'ezer Mitzarav Tiyeh, enabling Yehuda to actually win all debates and have settle halacha like him. What an incredible medrash highlighting the power of Yehuda's admission and lack of embarrassment. In blessing the tribe of Naphtali, Moshe gives them the bracha of svaratzon umalei birkas Hashem. What exactly does this mean that you should be fulfilled of desire and filled with the blessing of Hashem? So Rashi explains that it's referring to how plentiful and how productive and beautiful the portion of Naphtali would be and how it would be able to produce such beautiful and luscious fruit and uh, vegetables and the like that the people who live there, the tribe of Naphtali, would never have want for anything. However, that doesn't really address the second part of that phrase of Malay Birkas Hashem. However, in a similar vein, but focusing on that second phrase, the Da'as Sekeni Mibali Atozvos explained that because this land was so beautiful and so productive and so lush and the fruits would be so delicious and beautiful, anyone who went there and saw and tasted the fruit and the produce of Naphtali would be led to bless and give a bracha to Hashem, and therefore it was known as the land of Malay Birkas Hashem, because it was so beautiful and so delicious and so lush, that people would bless Hashem when they would experience it. Distilling this specific bracha into a larger principle, the famed Mashkiach of the Mir, Rav Yeruchim Levavitz, in his Sefer Da'as Torah here in our Parsha, says the larger point that we see from this is, that anything that brings people, that inspires people to remember Hashem, let alone to bless Hashem, that itself is a certain amount of Kedusha, that gives that person or that object an additional or even an inherent significant sense of Kedusha. Rav Ruchim traces this phenomenon with a number of surprising examples, things which you never would have expected, things which are certainly far from innately holy, and yet, because they trigger a certain acknowledgement or praise of Hashem, they are given a certain holy stature. And then he says, Kavachomer, all the more so, this should remind us about how much we should appreciate all of Eretz Yisrael in general. How all of Eretz Yisrael should remind us of Hashem's miracles throughout history and His love for us as demonstrated in all those incredible miracles and great kindnesses He's done in and through the land of Israel. And having gotten to this point, starting off with the, the bracha of Naphtali and the comment of the Da'asakenim and then bringing that to this 
idea of Eretz Yisrael being a trigger for loving Hashem and remembering Him, and that itself giving stature to Eretz Yisrael, the remainder of the essay, and of course the primary focus of this essay, which is really a few pages long and really deserves uh, everyone's attention to see it in the, in the original because it's really so beautiful and inspiring, but just to give a few highlights of it, the rest of the essay is all about how we should appreciate Eretz Yisrael, whether we live in Eretz Yisrael or live in the diaspora in Chutzlaretz, and he has messages for both populations, we have to truly appreciate Eretz Yisrael. So just to give a few highlights of this incredible essay, uh, he starts, um, among other places, by mentioning the Gemara in Subis, the famous Gemara at the end of the Masechet, which tells us about the great Chachamim who rolled around in the dirt of Eretz Yisrael, who kissed the cliffs of Akko, the rocks of Akko, and obviously this uncharacteristic and otherwise surprising behavior of great rabbis is meant to illustrate to us how much they loved Eretz Yisrael, how holy the land was, and of course if they appreciated and loved it so much, of course we're supposed to derive the lesson and hopefully love and uh, appreciate the sanctity of the land uh, as well. He then goes on to make a broader and more fundamental point based on a number of sources, including a well-known comment of Ramban, that the Iker Tachlis, he says, of all mitzvot, of the entire Torah, the ultimate purpose of everything, is Eretz Yisrael, is for the vision and the values of the Torah to be lived out in the land of Eretz Yisrael. And therefore we must realize wherever we live and at whatever time in history we find ourselves, just how kadosh, just how holy and central the land of Israel is to the Jewish people's vision and understanding of the world. He even makes an astonishing point to illustrate how what level we should be on in terms of our appreciation, how he says there was a time in history where there were people who wouldn't make Aliyah because they truly felt unworthy, because they honestly felt, how can I live in Paltin Shalmelech, in the palace of the king? The closer you get to the king, the better behaved you have to be. Maybe I can live in Europe, but how can I live in Eretz Yisrael? I can't reach such a level. I think if we were to hear this nowadays, we might be uh, skeptical or even cynical of such an expression. And I don't think he means to say that everyone felt that way even a hundred years ago. But the fact that there were some people, says Rav Yerucham, he knew people like this. So that is certainly an illustration of you know, how much we ought to appreciate and how much certain people did appreciate the holiness and sanctity of Eretz Yisrael. After having made that point with numerous sources, he then makes another point, which is really quite remarkable. He says it's not just the land of Israel, but the people who live in Eretz Yisrael as well. He says if it's true about the rocks in the land of Israel, Kolshikain she'ish me'eretz Yisrael, kedushi bo yoser me'avaneha. If the rocks of the land of Eretz Yisrael is so holy, then a ben Eretz Yisrael, someone who lives there, is even more holy than the land. And we should appreciate those people, he says, as well. He then gives a personal recollection of being six years old, a little boy, when someone, a Meshulach, came from the land of Israel, someone from Kupas Rabbi Meir Bahanais, to collect money in his town in Russia. And he says the people were so excited that they saw Ben Eretz Yisrael, they couldn't believe it. They were filled with such excitement and love just to touch someone who came from Eretz Yisrael. Says of Yeruchim, we mamish kissed his clothing like the Chachamim kissed the dirt of Eretz Yisrael. That's what it meant to meet someone who was a Ben Eretz Yisrael. Of course, he acknowledges that over time, the more access we've had to the land of Israel, naturally the less appreciation we have for it. And he even laments, Va'ani kfar margish batzmi. He admits he himself feels that he doesn't appreciate Eretz Yisrael as much as he used to when he was younger. And there's a general Yetzirah, he says, especially in his door, and it's certainly gotten worse, not better since then, that we look to tear things down based on the various blemishes we find 
instead of building things up. We must do the opposite. We must look for all the reasons that Eretz Yisrael is good and beautiful and build it up in our mind based on that. Last but not least, he has a special message for those of us who are lucky enough to live in Eretz Yisrael. He says there's a special responsibility, a special achrayis for those who live in Eretz Yisrael to behave in a way that brings kavod to the land. People should say, wow, that's someone who lives in Eretz Yisrael. That's a child who was raised in Eretz Yisrael. However, if we or our children behave no better, or chas worse than people who live outside the land of Israel, that is a form of machalas akachim. We've desecrated something that's holy, and that is something that we would be very, 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 very upset about. The well-known pasuk at the beginning of Parshas Vezos Habracha, Vayihi b'yeshurin melech, b'hisasef rashay am, yachad, Shiftei Yisrael, which certainly sounds like, on the most simple level, that uh, Hashem becomes the king, or at least his monarchy is enhanced when the Jewish people gather together in unity, in loyalty to Hashem. Um, using that as a kind of a springboard, I thought we could speak a little bit about a halachic corollary uh, of this idea, which seems to be more hashkafic, but halachic cor- cor- uh, corollary, which is known as Barov Am Hadras Melech, based on the Pasuk in Sefer Mishlei. And that is that, in general, there is a notion that there is greater Hidur, and there's greater covet for Hashem, when larger groups of people are performing a mitzvah. In fact, if you take a look in the Encyclopedia Talmudit, it categorizes three different applications, three different scenarios in which Barov Am is brought down in the scheme and even in earlier sources. The first is when lots of people take part in a mitzvah, each one doing a fraction of that mitzvah, so that altogether the mitzvah is done in completion. Theoretically, one or a small number of people could have done the mitzvah, but by increasing the number of people who are coming together to perform this mitzvah, that would be an application of barov am, of glorifying Hashem through the participation of many people. Where do we see this? So we actually see this in a number of Gemaras as it relates to the world of Karbonos, the world of Kodshim. For example, the Gemara in Psachim Amdach Samach Dalid tells us that when it came to the Karbon Pesach, so many people having their Karbonos shechted at the same time in the morning of Erev Pesach, and the Kohanim would line up in a huge assembly line uh, type gathering, one person passing to the next, one Kohen passing to the next, the blood going from the Karbon all the way until the reach the Mizbeach, where the last Kohen would sprinkle the blood onto the Mizbeach. So the mitzvah is the sprinkling of the blood on the Mizbeach. However, says the Gemara, and Rashi uh, explains the Gemara this way, the Ramam brings this down as well, the reason that we included so many uh, Kohanim wasn't just practical, but also to increase the number of people participating in the mitzvah as a fulfillment of Barov Am. Similarly, on a daily basis, the Gemara tells us in Yuma Daf Chavav that the Kohanim split the job of bringing the various parts of the animal for the carbon tamid up onto the ramp, the kevesh, and then eventually onto the zbeach. In theory, it could have been done by a smaller number uh, of kohanim, but yet each part of the animal was given a different person, a different kohen designated to bring it to the ramp, and then a different kohen to bring it onto the mizbeach, again, to increase the number of people participating, more people, it's all, it's all one mitzvah, but more people participating in the one mitzvah increases the kavod Hashem, brovam hadras melech. Interestingly, even though these Gemaras are all from the world of Karbonos, the Mordechai in Meseches Megillah 
brings down from the Or Zeruah, uh, based on these uh, sources, that the same idea is true with other mitzvos as well, even non-karbonos, non-beis mitzvos. If we could have one person doing every part of a mitzvah or divide it up, there is a benefit in dividing it up. And he gives an example of if you have, in theory, one person could be the chazan for shachras, could be the chazan for musaf, could be the balkore. Now, you know, not everyone might want to think that that's a preferable solution for purely aesthetic reasons. Maybe you don't like the person's voice, you want to give other people a chance, all sorts of other factors. But the way the Mordechai and the Rosaruah say it is that you should have different chazanim for shachras, musaf, and even a different balkore, because that is a variation of this idea of barovam hadras melech, just like the different kohanim were involved, so to having different people lead the tzibor and represent the tzibor is a form of barovam. So that's all category number one. A second category is when you have lots of people, each one doing the entire mitzvah, but doing it together. So for example, Rabbeinu Yonah says in Masech Brachos, this is brought down by the Muggen of Rome and Simensari, that uh, even if you could have a small, mil- small minion you know, on the block or in your house, it is better to go to shul and daven with a large crowd, because barovam hadras melech. Similarly, the Ran says in Masechus Megillah, also brought down by the Mugan of Rome in Hilchus Megillah, that when it comes to the reading of Megillah Sester, even if you can get 10 people for a house minion or something like that, but if the shul has a much bigger minion, then it's a mitzvah to go to the shul because Barov Am Hadras uh, Melech. Interestingly, there's a discussion when it comes to the laws of benching, uh, both in the Shulchan Aruch and in the Ramah, Mugan of Rome, and Simen Kuf Tzadi Gimel, if you have six people who ate together, six men, should they break into two zimuns of three, or should there be only one zimun of six? And here you have an interesting uh, question uh, in this regard. So the Shulchan Aruch and others rule that you should keep the single group, because six people doing it together it would be Barovam. There is an interesting uh, minority view of the Taz, who actually thinks it's better to split up, because even three people doing it is already a form of Barovam, but now you have the additional benefit of having two Zimuns. Maybe that's better for Hashem. So that's an interesting uh, kind of unique uh, case, but uh, with a little bit of a wrinkle. But you do see, when it comes to Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah, and the Magad Avram, there also that uh, one uh, Zimun of six people is, is has a certain preference and a certain enhancement. Uh, furthermore, uh, the Magad Avram brings down the idea that we do Kiddush Levana together. You don't need a minion for Kiddush Levana, and yet the Minog is for everyone to do it together because of Barov uh, Am. It should be noted, by the way, um, this comes to, let's say, Kiddush and things like that, uh, in, in the home, especially if you have guests, uh, Shulchan Aruch uh, brings down that um, in certain contexts, we say it's better for one person to do the mitzvah on behalf of others. That's not always possible, but in those mitzvahs where it's possible, it would be better for one person to do it on behalf of others. That's why in many homes, even though there's multiple people who could make Kiddush, often just the head of the house uh, makes Kiddush. Or, for example, the Shulchan Aruch brings down that originally, uh, it's not our minog anymore, but the original din was that one person would bench and everyone else would just listen and say Amen. That would also theoretically be a form of Barovam. And last but not least is the example of uh, one person doing the mitzvah, but it being done in the presence of other people. So, for example, the Gemara Yuma says, and Rashi explains the Gemara this way, when the Kohen Gadol is reading the Torah on Yom Kippur in the Azara, there where other people could see him, that would be a fulfillment of Barovah. Most of what the Kohen Gadol does, uh, no one can see, it's private on Yom Kippur. But the reading of the Torah was done in a part of the base of English where other people could be, and the more people that were there, the more people that saw it, that would be a fulfillment of the mitzvah of Barovah as well.